Author Alan Noble begins his book, You Are Not Your Own, gazing in to life at the local zoo. And I anticipate imagining life at the zoo is not a stretch for many of you, since the Omaha Metro has one of the best zoos in the country. Although, although we've slipped a bit, we're now number three in the latest poll. Now, one of the animals you may be drawn to visit is the lion. Noble says when you observe a lion at the zoo, you know something isn't quite right. That lion was made to live and run on the plains. That lion was made to hunt and chase down their meals. The existence we observe at the zoo is something subpar. They live, but they don't really live. Noble says the, the common term for what lions demonstrate at the zoo is zoocosis, obsessively pacing back and forth in whatever cage they find themselves. This behavior reflects their reality. Imprisoned in a cage, no hope for, for freedom. If a lion were behaving like this in the wild, you would assume that lion was crazy, that that lion had rabies, or that lion was influenced by some substance. In a cage, it's what we expect. It's living, but it's not living as they were intended to live. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is addressing a number of pragmatic concerns. We've seen him address issues of sexuality, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, whether or not someone is better being married or being single, and how spiritual gifts should be practiced in the church. As he addresses those concerns, he recognizes there's something that isn't quite right. There seems to be something deficient in their theology, and that is playing out in how they live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is revealing some of what that is. While Christians in Corinth were gathering for worship, professing faith in Christ to varying degrees. Some were denying the reality of the resurrection, while others were dismissing its significance and meaning. As such, the existence many were experiencing was something subpar. They were living, but they weren't really living. If you have a Bible, open it up to the passage read earlier, verses 12 through 34 of chapter 15. I'm going to start by reading verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? In the verses that immediately follow, Paul is focusing on this word raised, raised, or this theme of resurrection over and over and over. It's in verses 12, verse 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, sometimes not just once, but multiple times. If Christ has not been raised, if the dead are not raised, Paul is drawing attention to implications of denying resurrection. Paul is transitioning from what we looked at last week, the doctrine of the resurrection, to so what? So what if Jesus rose from the dead? Or so what if Jesus did not rise from the dead? Why does that matter? You may have heard expressions like living your best life now. 
This passage will argue to live our best life now, we need to live in light of the resurrection. Paul wants the resurrection to change not only our view of death, but how we experience life today. That we wouldn't just live, that we would really live. So the big idea for this sermon is living your resurrected life now. And Paul is going to make the point, he's going to argue the reality of the resurrection reveals deliverance over death and liberation in life. Paul will use a logical thought process to address people who may be prone to dismiss or deny the significance of the resurrection. First, people who deny the resurrection outright. Second, people who didn't doubt the resurrection because people continue to die. And third, people who may be imprisoned to an earthly life because they have been influenced to dismiss the significance of the resurrection. So let's first address people who deny the reality of the resurrection, yet profess faith in Christ at some level. So there are actually millions of people across the globe who actually fall into this camp. People of the Muslim faith and people from some liberal branches of Christianity. They would affirm Jesus as a good teacher or a prophet who upholds moral principles. And they would affirm that he died at some point, but they would deny his resurrection. Maybe it was made up. Maybe it was only something that happened spiritual or metaphorical. They also may affirm the resurrection of our body is only spiritual or metaphorical. Such individuals struggle with the supernatural. Paul is saying to uphold Jesus as a good teacher while denying the resurrection of the body, that's flawed. Here's verses 13 through 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So there's a connection between the resurrection of Christ's body and the resurrection of our bodies. If you deny one, why would you think the other was true? Each demonstrates God's power over death. If God was powerful enough to raise Christ, why wouldn't he be powerful enough to raise your body? If you believe the one, you should believe the other. Or if you reject one, you should reject the other. In addition to this connection between the the two resurrections, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, everything the apostles are telling you, it's a fraud. The credibility of the Christian faith has, is rooted in whether or not the resurrection is fact or fiction. If Christ has not been resurrected, dismiss the gospel writers. Dismiss the writers of the New Testament. They're lying. They're upholding fake news. This separates Christianity from other religious traditions because it is centered on a supernatural event. Something extraordinary. Buddhism relies on teachings, but not some supernatural event. 
Islam relies on God speaking through prophets, but it is not rooted in a supernatural occurrence. If the fact of the supernatural resurrection is fake, faith in Christ is futile. Believing Jesus is a good teacher while denying faith in the resurrection, that's flawed. Paul continues in verses 16, 17, and 19. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If we have put our, fo- our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. To deny the resurrection of the body would be to deny the supernatural power and authority of the God who makes resurrection possible. Denying the resurrection of Christ denies what he came to do. So we would not have any real future. We would have no hope of experiencing victory over sin because God does not have the power to redeem and restore what has been broken. Sin wins out in the physical world. Because what has been affected and infected by sin, your body, the best hope is for it to be destroyed. For God to abandon your body to the effects of sin. If you do not believe in a God that raised Christ from the dead or is able to raise believers in Christ from the dead, your God is not victorious. His enemies are victorious over him. So Paul addresses those who would deny the possibility of resurrection as real. Second, he addresses those who doubt resurrection because death still happens. He'll he'll approach this concern two ways. The the first is in verses 20 through 22. But, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So Paul is talking about fruit. I like fruit. Actually, I really like fruit pies. Now, one of my favorite memories of my grandmother growing up was her homemade pies. My parents owned an acre or two of land, and on it were a number of trees. Peach trees, pear trees, apple trees, and cherry trees. Cherry trees were one of my favorites. Now, when the cherries ripened, we'd pick the cherries from the tree and we would pit them. We would roll the cherries between our fingers, drop the pit or the seed into one bowl, and put the cherry into another. You don't want seeds in your cherry pie. The pitted cherries would now be used to make that cherry pie. Those who deny the resurrection deny something beautiful to come after death. They would deny the reality of that cherry pie, and they would be missing out. Now, as you were pitting cherries, sometimes you'd find worms, right? You certainly didn't want worms in your cherry pie, and you didn't want the cherry that the worm spoiled in your cherry pie. It would mess that whole pie up. So it went into the bowl with the seeds. We'll call that bowl the bowl of death because it was thrown into the trash. Those cherries, they could not be redeemed. What sin did to you and I, all of us are spoiled. 
All of us are rotten. All of us are going to experience death. But Paul is saying Jesus is the first fruit, meaning he's the better fruit. He is the one who has not been made rotten by the effects of sin. Yet, after his time on earth, he didn't immediately ascend to heaven. He experienced death. Imagine a cherry that was not spoiled, that should have been put in the bowl of life. It identified with the bowl of death, and it came out. We have a Savior who went into the bowl of death, who had no business going there. He identified with those in the bowl of death, and he came out. The sin of Adam separated us from God, and ultimate separation was death. In light of Adam's sin, in light of the sin each of us commits, we all experience death. Paul is saying the resurrection of Christ after death, it guarantees death does not win. Jesus has defeated death. All who are in Christ will be made alive. If we're bound to Adam, we are bound to death. If we are bound to Christ, we are bound to resurrection from death. His resurrection is the first fruits of something to come. His resurrection is not some lone and isolated incident. Instead, the resurrection of Christ is the tip of the iceberg. Something much greater and magnificent exists below the surface, below what can be seen. All who are in Christ will be made alive. Christ's bodily resurrection represents the bodily resurrection of his people. So one view of life after death, often associated with a group of people called the Gnostics, is that a soul lives after death, but a body does not. A body is a cage or container that keeps one from experiencing true life and true freedom. The spirit lives on, but there is no bodily resurrection. Scholars think this is probably what was happening with the Corinthians. Since they had, had experienced a spiritual awakening, life and the spirit meant ridding oneself of the body. The body was therefore inferior or subpar. The implication of denying resurrection of the body would be that what we do spiritually matters, but what we do with our bodies does not. Jesus' resurrection, experienced and professed by others, affirms there is life after death. God has been victorious over death. There is something remarkable for us to look forward to, like I looked forward to those cherry pies. But more than that, while sin has infected and affected your flesh, while it has made your flesh rotten and spoiled and wicked, rather than the death of your body being the end, like those rotten and spoiled cherries being thrown into the trash, Jesus is redeeming your flesh. So what if Jesus rose from the dead? Why does it matter? On one hand, you do not need to fear death. Jesus has been victorious over death. And your hope, your hope is not in being perfect or, or being slightly spoiled. And your best hope in the future 
it is that Jesus is redeeming your flesh. It is not to be redeemed from living in the flesh. Your best hope in the future is living in the fullness of your body. You are not set free from your body. Let me say it again. God does not abandon your body. God befriends your body. As Adam and Eve were intended to live in the fullness of their bodies in the Garden of Eden, your bodies are being redeemed to experience that. Since Christ has been raised after death, the implication is those in Christ who die will join him in being raised to new life. Now, some of you may have questions about the redemption of your body, how that works. I believe Pastor Chris will be addressing that more by way of the text next week. So Paul uses the principle of first fruits as one way to address doubt in the resurrection when Christians still die. Of course, when is the rest of this harvest going to happen? So another way he addresses this dynamic is describing something theologians refer to as already, but not yet. There is a reality that Christ's resurrection has already happened. And so death, the effects of Adam's sin, the effects of sin of you and I, that has been defeated. But the fullness of that has not yet been experienced. When will that happen? Here's verses 24 through 28. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Paul is using a variety of strategies and some Old Testament scripture to talk about the second coming of Christ. Death is not the end. The effects of the curse have been reversed. However, the effects of that will not be fully experienced until everything is subject to Christ. When Christ returns in ultimate victory, bringing to an end all earthly dominion and all earthly authority and power, and he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Christ's resurrection demonstrates God's victory over death already. When Christ returns, that victory will be fully experienced. And Scripture tells us there will be no more sorrow and no more sadness and no more pain and no more death when that happens. Now in verse 29, Paul says more about denying belief in the resurrection, how how such denial was connected from the practices of the Corinthian church, and what he says, to say the least, is confusing. I can't remember if Pastor Chris has referenced this before, but, but the Apostle Peter describes Paul's writings as sometimes confusing. Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. I'm so glad 
Peter offers this word, that it is not just you or I who sometimes have difficulty understanding what Paul says, that Peter did as well. What does Paul say in verse 29? Otherwise, what they will do who are being baptized for the dead, if the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? What? Are the Corinthians being baptized on behalf of dead people? Or for others, are they looking to baptism in some magical way to redeem the dead? Should this be a practice churches exercise today? The Mormon church has actually adopted such a practice. Roman Catholics pray for the dead, but they do not baptize individuals vicariously who who have passed away. Those who might twist Paul's teachings here, who want to affirm there is hope for those who do not accept Christ, during an earthly life, might affirm such a position. Paul is not really supporting this practice in the Corinthian church. He is simply pointing out, baptizing individuals for an afterlife while denying resurrection, that would be foolish if there was no afterlife. I do not have time to get into the the specifics of the different interpretations of this text. I'll share a resource or two on how to think about this verse in our weekly update. Paul's point, there is life after death. It is foolish to expect others to be united with Christ if there is no afterlife. So in verses 30 through 34, Paul puts a bit of an exclamation point on the importance of affirming the reality of the resurrection and how it plays out in living day to day. He's talking about living your resurrected life now. So after addressing those who would deny resurrection and those who would doubt resurrection in light of death still occurring, he turns to those influenced by those groups who might dismiss the significance of resurrection. To them, he contrasts two different lifestyles. One is the lifestyle that he has been living suffering and surrendering much for the sake of the gospel. He's been persecuted. He has boldly proclaimed the gospel to others. This is how Christians live when they live the resurrected life now, not being imprisoned to earthly things. He is saying living this way would be pointless. Living the way he has been living would be futile if resurrection is not a reality. He then provides an alternative. Here's verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Dismissing or denying the significance of the resurrection, a, a life lacking liberation is one that looks to earthly pleasures and earthly comforts to provide ultimate meaning and purpose. Like the lion at the zoo, the only comfort we have is the next meal and a full tummy, some earthly pleasure to satisfy. Such behavior, such belief, it produces behavior a bit like psychosis. So Paul continues in verses 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. 
for some people are ignorant about God, I say this to your shame. Paul is acknowledging that some in the church may be influenced by those dismissing or denying the significance of the resurrection. The company they keep is corrupting how they live. Such an individual may be part of a church, but they would not be living their resurrected life now. Too many of us, rather than living in light of the resurrection, we are focused on living for earthly comfort and earthly pleasure. So the suffering and hardship we experience, we simply want to numb it. We want to escape. We want to withdraw. We want to stay busy. We place our hope in experiencing some earthly blessing. For those my age and perhaps older, we placed our hope in the American dream of living a middle-class lifestyle with 2.2 kids, owning our own home, a relative freedom from suffering. Those younger, the, the dream is being the captain of your own ship, not being tied to debt, being able to do whatever you want to do, Being free means being fulfilled. This is what culture teaches you to place your hope in. This is how bad company can corrupt good morals. Like the lion at the zoo, something is off. We live in deficient ways. When Christians miss the significance of the resurrection, we live in ways we are imprisoned to earthly things. We wander aimlessly. We do not experience the joy and victory we have in Christ when we do not get the earthly life that we want or feel entitled to. Like the lion, you pace back and forth looking for something to satisfy when you were made and saved to experience something so much greater. One of the ways we, as Paul says, one of the ways we come to our senses is exercising spiritual disciplines. It could be prayer or Bible reading or gathering with God's people or or perhaps fasting. Entering into such practices is not, not to earn earthly favor or even earn eternal favor, but rather to experience the union we have with Christ. So for me, I have embraced this practice like some of you during this Lenten season. This is a growing spiritual discipline for me. I don't like to deny myself food. I want to eat whenever I want to eat. But I don't, I don't eat because I'm hungry. I eat because I'm bored. Um, I eat to escape discomfort. I, I eat because I'm looking to things on earth rather than things rooted in eternity to satisfy me. Fasting reveals how much I place my hope in earthly life rather than my life in Christ. So in Donald Whitney's excellent book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he discusses the practice of fasting, and he roots Christians in the reality fasting is not done to gain worth or to impress others or to impress God. Fasting is not done as an end to itself so that we would become hungry. Fasting is done to remind us of spiritual realities. Your hunger helps you, serving as a continual reminder of your spiritual purpose. Throughout your fast, every time you feel hunger, whether you are working or driving or talking to someone or sitting at the computer, walking or whatever, 
you are reminded of your purpose. Many of us have forgotten our purpose. Rather than living in light of eternal realities, we are imprisoned to earthly realities. So when you feel discomfort, rather than cling to Christ, you escape to earthly comfort. You look at your phone when you don't need to look at your phone. You eat food when you don't need to eat. You, you drink something to numb your discomfort. You ingest a substance that makes the tension subside. You binge on Netflix or Amazon. You look to earthly things to fulfill meaning and purpose. And when there are earthly things that you can't get, a, a particular job, a, a particular kind of family, a, a specific relationship, you become resentful and bitter and despondent. The English Standard Version says, come to your senses this way. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Arouse from what seems like zucosis, where you live, but you don't really live. Where you experience, when you experience liberation in living, it is not so that you can do whatever you want, but so you are freed from being imprisoned to earthly things to find ultimate meaning and joy and peace. If you identify with this lifestyle of the lion, pacing back and forth, looking to earthly circumstances and situations for peace and meaning and joy, I want to appeal to you this morning to reflect on the significance and meaning of the resurrection, to consider how it transforms your living today. Trusting in the resurrection means you are invited into victory over sin and death. Trusting in the resurrection of your body means you are invited into experiencing union with the God who redeems and resurrects. If you are in Christ, come to your senses, wake up, and experience the truth of the resurrection in its fullness. If you are with us this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ, maybe the Lord is awakening you to something different. How you are imprisoned to find meaning and purpose in earthly things. If that is something you're awakening to, I want to encourage you this morning to cry out to God. And to meet with someone to, to spend some time processing and to pray. The Apostle Paul wants us to live in light of the resurrection now, a life we are liberated from earthly things. He wants us to stop sinning, to stop seeking pleasure in, in, in things that are imprisoning us. He wants us to be freed up, to boldly proclaim and declare the gospel to others. He wants us to, to walk in the joy of the victory Christ has secured for us over sin and death. May, be, may we be the type of Christians who do that. May we live our resurrected life now. Let's pray.